So good evening, everyone. We're broadcasting on the internet as well, but I'm just going to let the internet go. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. This talk is for you who have come here to meditate with us. Sarat, you should just stay stay practicing. Just stay focused. He's finishing his course soon, so better to stay focused. So I thought something general and useful to talk about is well, the title of the talk is going to be A Meditator's Life, Living as a Meditator. In the meditation center, it, it is quite simple. We maybe risk um, oversimplifying it, where we think the only thing is to repeat words, mantras in our mind. It's just a technique and that's how, that's all we do. But, but even in a meditation center, life is not, it's not, uh, it's not singular. It's complex, it still has its complexity. So you can take this talk as useful for us here in the center, but also useful in general. I mean, we always have questions about how to live our lives and incorporate meditation into our lives. So it's useful in that way as well. Still, it's mostly hardcore for serious meditators to think about those supportive factors in the way we live our life that are going to help us not just progress in meditation, but to live a meditative life, a life that is by nature pure, mindful, alert, aware, awake. It's a good way to live. No? That's the idea. So the first thing, of course, is to actually meditate. And not just meditate, because that word, it's a troubling word, it's a troublesome word. I have to meet people who say, oh yeah, I meditate. And of course, I mean, that doesn't mean anything, that doesn't mean very much. From, I mean, in terms of explaining the sort of, I mean, it does tell me that you have interest in some sort of, mental development, but it's such a broad topic, right? So here we don't mean, the, the word the Buddha used is seeing. Now, there's not much, the Buddha didn't use the word meditation very much. There is a word for it. There's a couple of words that relate to the word meditation, but 
um, he used the word seeing, you know, to be very particular about what we're trying to do. We're trying to see. So the first, most important thing about our lives is to focus our attention on seeing. Seeing what? I mean, simply, we're seeing reality, seeing the way things are, seeing clearly. This is why we use the word vipassana. It means seeing clearly or seeing in a penetrative sort of way. Penetrating means seeing through all the delusions and all the concepts to see reality, to see things as they are. And so when, when you when you think about your meditation practice and are concerned about whether you're doing something valuable or useful and why are you doing what you're doing? Are you doing it? How do you know if you're doing it properly and so on? The focus should be on seeing. I mean, it, it really... I think it sounds more mysterious and meditation in general tends to sound more mystical and uh, enigmatic than it actually is. It really just means to see what's going on in your body and your mind, what's going on with you right now. What's your state of mind? What's your state of body? You know, the, the Satipatthana is a really useful framework the four satipatthana, the body. What is the body doing? Learning about the body. Even just isolating the body, you know. When we're mindful of the body, we learn so much. We learn to see how the way we move um, creates stress and suffering. You know, our, our unmindful movements. And how being mindful helps us to understand how the body works, helps us to be very present. Um, it helps us to relate to the mind when we see how the mind affects the body, the tension that arises in the body because of the mind. When the mind is stressed and there's tension in the body, so meditating on the body it helps you see the mind. It also helps you relax. It's very useful at helping you focus and relax because the body is neutral. When you watch your stomach rising and falling, it's, it's quite powerful in that it, it makes your mind quite neutral because it's an object that is quite neutral. When you're walking, it seems dull and it can be felt to be quite boring and, and, and uninteresting, but on the other side, it's quite peaceful and neutral and clear, something that we can easily relate to and cultivate very powerful states of mind. Our feelings, you know, being mindful of our feelings, learning about our feelings, learning about how feelings are not under our control. We can't always be happy. We can't escape pain. That trying to escape pain is quite bothersome and unfruitful, unsuccessful. 
drawn. So seeing these sorts of things, seeing about the mind, seeing how the mind works. Oh, seeing how thinking is not quite what we thought it was. We tend to think, especially in the West, we have a culture of overthinking. We sit and think or sit and talk or sit and debate and think and think. Thinking is considered to be a virtue, a wonderful pastime. But when you investigate, when you examine, you say, oh, it can actually be quite stressful as well. Thinking a lot is actually, it's not very wieldy. It's quite chaotic. And it's what leads very quickly to emotional difficulty because if it's going too quickly, you can't keep track of, oh, oh, I'm slipping into a bad habit. I'm feeding into this bad habit. It's very hard to see because it's so quick and chaotic. And you can see these, these habits and how difficult they are to overcome because of how complicated it all is and the, the way the mind works. It's running so quickly that it's very hard to work it out. And of course, the the emotions, being mindful of our likes and dislikes is very important. Seeing how our likes and dislikes cause us stress and tension and suffering. Changing it from the thing I don't like is causing me suffering to, hey, the fact that I don't like it is what's causing me suffering. And from not getting what I want is causing me suffering to, ah, the wanting, yes. I didn't want that thing that I don't have. It would be much more tenable than trying to always get what I want. So seeing this is our, it's actually quite simple. So don't miss, don't skip over it and think, hey, where's the good stuff? Okay, all this stuff I see, but when am I going to get to see? You know, where's the fireworks? No, it's not about seeing fireworks. It's about the nitty-gritty details of our mind, of our being. That's the first part of being a meditator. That's, I think, quite clear. The second part is in regards to our life, you know, our food, our shelter, our clothing. They call the requisites in Buddhism, the use of uh, medicine, the things we need to live. How you relate to your clothes. You know, as a meditator as well, we're careful not to bring beautiful clothes or, or enticing, attractive clothes that show off the body or you know, are meant to create the desires in others and so on. Make, to make us look good, make us look cool, make us look handsome, beautiful. We're careful not to get attached to our clothes, like, oh, this is so beautiful, this robe I'm wearing, how sexy, no, how, how sorry, that's not the right word, how um, beautiful it is, how I like wearing this robe. This is why we wear these robes that aren't in any way attractive. 
but as meditators, you know, look at our meditators, they're not wearing attractive clothes. But it's important, you know, these kinds of things because the it's not something that you have to spend a lot of time thinking about, but it's certainly something as a meditator we definitely have to be aware of. Clothes are something we wear all day. They're they're one of the few things that we carry around with us. Right? What do you carry around with you more than your clothes? Nothing. So something to think about. This thing that I'm always that's always draped over my body. It's a part of our life. Food. Food is important, you know. Being here in the center you can attest, right? You ever go to sleep at night and think about what you're gonna have in the morning for for breakfast? What am I gonna eat for lunch? Or you get lunch and eh, it's not really what I wanted. Eventually, as meditators, you're doing intensive practice, you get to the point where you're, oh boy, I have to go up and eat food again. <laughs> How troublesome. But food can be so many things, right? It can be a strong addiction. Cravings for food. You must all have cravings, no? When we go through the course, the things we crave, cheeseburgers, pizza, cheesecake, uh, or uh, those, what do you call the noodle, Vietnamese noodle soup? I don't get any of that here, I don't suppose. Spring rolls, they have spring rolls, no, in Vietnam. Food. Food can be such a strong attachment. It can be an attachment when you don't like it, when it's dull and boring and, un and uninspiring, un undelightful. Uh, shelter. So our, our residence, our bedding is another part of that. We try to sleep on the floor. When I did my first course, it was like a thinnest mat you could get and on the hard wooden floor. I found out later that other meditators requested extras, but I didn't. I was really hardcore my first time. This was like, this was why I went to Asia. I mean, I'm not the only one. I met other people that were like that. It's, it's romantic, you know. Just going to give up everything. Go for it. can be helpful. But yes, trying to not torture yourself by sleeping on the wooden floor, but to be careful because it will affect your practice, how you use these things. So the Buddha had us reflect on the things that we need to use. Medicine as well. Medicine is important. I mean, hopefully our meditators are not taking medicine, um, painkillers. You know, Try not to take things like painkillers and so on. When you're here in the intensive course um, and coffee don't drink coffee to stay awake or, or caffeinated tea thinking this will give me energy not really helpful medicine should be for emergencies the next part is have i missed one? Oh, oh i missed one the second one is actually guarding. So it's the next one we'll talk about is guarding. Guarding the senses. 
as we live our lives, we we come in contact with sensory perception, right? When you're not meditating with your eyes closed, you're going to see things, see beautiful things, ugly things. Maybe you look at this house and you think, boy, such a palace. So wonderful to be, no, probably not. You think to yourself, maybe, oh, it's so drab in here, living in this musty basement. Same walls, same ceiling, having to deal with these sensory perceptions. So good ones, bad ones, they, they can wear on us if we react to them. When you've lived when you've lived here in this century, prison would through the experience, prison the idea of prison becomes much less of a scary thing because I mean, well, besides many of the scary things that go on in prisons, but living in a jail cell, you start to realize that it's really all about your reactions. It's not about your experience. There's nothing less wonderful about living in a jail cell. But our sensory perceptions, our, our senses can and do cause us lots of stress and suffering. So guarding the senses, let seeing just be seeing. It's a very core Buddhist teaching. Let seeing just be seeing. Hearing, just hearing. Smelling is just smelling. Tasting, feeling, thinking. The problem isn't what you experience. It's not that you have to live in this drab house with this drab room with the smells and the sounds and the so on. It's really neither here nor there. You can be completely at peace and happy with all of that. Or you can be miserable. You can be miserable living in a mansion. So that's the next one. The next, after that... The next part is what we, so we have what we have to use. Next we have what we have to endure. Some things it's not about using them, but it's about coming in contact with them. And just having to bear with them. So loud noise, apparently that's an issue here in the basement. There's a, I think it's probably the propane water heater. It's apparently noisy. So having to deal with that, having to bear with that can be difficult. Uh, hmm. It doesn't really matter because no matter where you go, there's going to be things you have to endure. But but worse than that, you'll have to endure pain. Sometimes you might be, your body might be in a bad condition. You might have backache. You might have a headache. having to deal with insects, having to deal with mosquitoes. Here I don't think there's so many in the house, but there may very well be one. We don't kill. So maybe just letting the mosquito have its dinner. You can be the mosquito's dinner and just let go, you know. Learn to endure. Endure heat, endure cold. Cold and heat can be quite vexing. They can cause us great stress, but they're really just heat and cold. You know, unless you're going to get hypothermia or, or whatever the heat stroke. 
for the most part, they're just something that we react to. You can be, you can actually be quite cold without any adverse effects if you're mindful. But if you're not mindful, same with heat, you can be very quite hot. I mean, I've been living, we lived in Winnipeg for a while. It was negative 40 below. One day we thought we'd take a walk in the middle of winter, me and this novice I was living with. And, oh, we couldn't, we, we walked quite a ways, but in our monk's robes it wasn't, it was difficult. And then I've lived in Sri Lanka, which is very hot, and Thailand in the summer can be very hot. Even the Thai monks were complaining, which was... Um, was a sign but there's just temperature so enduring things very important part of our practice pain heat cold hunger thirst if it won't kill you it's not really something you have to worry about and even if it will kill you it's actually not something you have to worry about but hopefully it doesn't get to that point Right, so things we have to endure, things we have to avoid. Here in the center, hopefully there's not that much you have to avoid, but if there were poisonous snakes or poisonous spiders, we don't have any in Canada, really. Nothing that you'd ever find here in, at ever, ever. Um, but if we had them, well, you'd have to avoid a poisonous snake. You have to... Avoid charging elephants. If there's an elephant charging, well, don't just stand there. Bears, we have bears in Canada. I think you're supposed to lie down and play dead. But yes, avoiding dangers, that sort of thing. In life there are things it's worth mentioning because you don't just endure having a wild animal attack you. It pays to avoid calamity. Um, there are some things that you should avoid because they're unhelpful for meditation. They're, they're problematic, like going to parties, bars. You should avoid places where they sell alcohol. It's a good rule of life as a meditator. doesn't mean you have to. It doesn't mean you, you ban them from your life, but don't go to bars. There's really not much reason. It'd be hard to find a reason for a meditator to go to a bar. I've actually, as a monk, been in a bar once, maybe. That was a, a extenuating circuit. It was a family thing that was just probably a mistake in the end, but it was for my grandmother. But yeah, avoid avoid these things, avoid, um, you know, the Buddha, talk, this is a talk he gave to monks, so he said avoid prostitutes. <laughs> it doesn't mean, doesn't mean avoid buying, the, paying them for sex, it means avoid hanging out with them. Probably not good company. Not that there's any, not that it's someone we should shun. I've actually, I taught a prostitute in Thailand how to meditate once. Very interesting story. Very interesting woman. Um, but um, you know, hanging out with, with, with unmarried women, that sort of thing for monks. Yeah. So generalizing to when you're in engaging in meditation and you're trying to be celibate, mm, those beings that you find sexually or romantically attractive, probably better to 
keep some distance. Not that, not that there's anything intrinsically wrong, right? It's just your reactions. But because we're not enlightened, we have to we come to the practice with quite strong habits of reacting. Reacting. It's in our best interest to take it slowly and and retreat a little bit. Our goal is to face things, but let us not um, try to face everything all at once. Avoiding, and there's other reasons for avoiding various things like that because of how it, the sorts of people you're going to meet in a bar and, and the, the reputation you get. I mean, just practical reasons for avoiding various things. Um, yeah, so avoiding. The other thing, no, that's avoiding. So what do we have? We have seeing, we put them in the right order, guarding, using, enduring, avoid, avoiding. And then the next one is abandoning. Yes, there are things and aspects, and this is really getting into, getting back to the meditation, what we're trying to abandon. We should abandon thoughts of ill will. We should abandon thoughts of craving, addiction. We should abandon thoughts of arrogance, conceit, harmful, un unethical thoughts. We should abandon them. And more deeply, we should come to abandon, abandon everything, really. Our... Our attachment to things, it's not a part of who we are that is of any use. There's no attachment to anything that is of any good to you. Sabe dhamma na lang All dhammas, indeed, are not worth clinging to. So yes, abandoning really is what we're trying to do. Our whole goal is to abandon. It's maybe not in, in general like that. It's more to let go, right? We use this word, let go. Letting go is misleading because it, it implies an activity. Like you would just sit there and, oh, let go of this. Oh, you know, actively letting go. It's not really how it works. It is about letting go, but letting go is a product of a mind that sees clearly sees clearly that the thing one is clinging to is not worth clinging to that's how letting go comes about it doesn't come about by doing this it doesn't come about by some mental uh, opening of your fist it comes about by vision by knowledge It's much closer, you could say, to letting be rather than letting go. It's about letting be in the sense of not grasping in the first place because you see that it's not worth grasping to, grasping onto. Of course, it becomes much more like letting go when you see that everything is not worth clinging to. And there's this kind of like an epiphany, which is this uh, state of becoming enlightened where the mind just not quite like an epiphany, but it's a moment of complete release 
where there's a an overarching sense that nothing that clinging is just not good not good at all it's a moment of complete release that's where the mind enters into nibbana so that's the next the last the sixth one the last one is called the things we have to develop so again coming back to our practice this relates to seeing but in your process of seeing there's a cultivation there's a progression so people who are interested in hey what uh, where is this going how, how do i know if i'm progressing well you really have uh, this this set of things that you have to develop First of all, mindfulness, of course, that's the base. Second is kind of, is called investigation. You have to be inquisitive, not intellectually inquisitive, but you have to have a, a sense of um, keenness or, or attention to the experiences, which is tied up with mindfulness. It's really a part of the mindfulness process, but... Mindfulness isn't just about repeating words in your head like pain, pain. It's about really putting your mind, not forcefully, but seriously, like with serious intent and investigation, into, not into the details. We don't need to examine it for, for this or for that. Just put your mind there. You have to be willing to investigate, to observe. Like think of it as a scientist. A scientist doesn't go looking for something. Particularly, they go to observe, to see what's there. Right? The scientist doesn't go in saying, "Well, I'm looking for this conclusion. This is I'm I'm looking for it to be like this." The scientist goes and says, "I'm looking to see the way it is, see which way it is, and I will record that." That's investigation. Uh, you need effort. So again, not forceful effort, but you need to. You need to kind of get yourself up to do it. You know, meditate. It's not going to meditate itself. <laughs> Meditation's not going to do itself. Right? Like the work's not going to do itself. Now it's the same with meditation. You do the work, you get the, you get the fruit. Uh, you need uh, zest. So you need to be. Um, keen on it kind of excited in a sense but excited is too strong you have to get caught up in the practice so it has to be something that it's kind of like getting into the groove and you'll start to feel this those of you who have been here a while in the beginning it's you don't have this zest or this rapture is the word they use I think rapture is a fairly good word even though it's quite strong but it's kind of implies this sort of getting caught up in it where you really get in your groove, you get into a groove, and it becomes um, powerful. Because you're no longer struggling just to figure out how to meditate. You're working to do what you know how to do, because you know how to do it. Then you need quiet. And this is a struggle, and this is something you have to struggle with. But your mind has to quiet down. You can't encourage stray thoughts. You can't encourage your mind to wander, to think. 
to get distracted. You need to calm your mind down. It's not forceful. Forcing it doesn't work. But you have to be methodical and systematic and thoughtful and 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 intent on keeping the mind present, quieting the mind, because that leads to concentration, because the other thing you need, the next thing you need is concentration. You want to become enlightened? Well, you have to focus. And so it doesn't really matter where your mind goes. It's not a question of keeping the mind with the breath. No, if your mind goes here, put your concentration there. If your mind goes here, change the quality of the mind, not the experience. That's not the way to go. When the mind is here, that's where you build concentration. Just change it from a distracted mind to a focused mind. That's what the words do. That's what it does when we repeat these words. And the final thing to develop is equanimity. Yes, you need to be equanimous. Now again, you can't force it, but it's important to keep in mind, hey, how should we observe things? When you say pain, it shouldn't be pain, 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 and this is a bad thing. You should strive to remind yourself, hey, that's pain, which is just a thing. The reason for the words, I mean, a real big part of it is to say, is basically to say to yourself, it's neutral. It's neither good nor bad. It is what it is. That's important because that what it is, is not good or bad. It has no bearing on right, wrong, good, bad, me, mine. All the concepts and conceptions we have about it are extremely to that fact that it is what it is so that focus that equanimity is, is essential for allowing us to see clearly for allowing us to become free become enlightened so seven, seven sets that's a whole comprehensive Buddha said specifically he said this is the way of overcoming all the many um, leaks you know the ways you can leak out and here meditation is kind of like keeping yourself contained uh, contained keeping yourself whole strong present here but you'll be there's leaks and so this is the way to stop yourself from getting caught up in some kind of outflow it's from the Sabaso Sutta. It's one of my one of my favorite talks. I think it's quite, uh, in the sense that it's, it's quite useful. I think to talk to meditators about just sums everything up in a very good way. <clears throat>